Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And since I've switched to reading glasses, I kind of stepped away from manuscripting. Uh, I've been doing that for about a year. But it's hard, you know, I don't have progressive lenses, so it's hard. When I can see the paper good, I can't see you. And when I preach, I want to see you. And so what I did is I pulled an old man stunt and blew the print up on my manuscript really big. But I did bring my glasses because it may work and it may not. I hope it does. Romans 1, 16 through 18 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith to faith. As it is written, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So far in Romans, we've looked at the first few verses which told us about a gospel identity. The Apostle Paul saw himself primarily as a man under in the gospel and working through the gospel to take the message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the world. This is how he identified himself. From the very beginning, we saw that he called himself a servant. He called himself an apostle, called out by God to take the gospel to those who have never heard it. And then we step down to the next paragraph where he expresses his deep gospel longing for the people in the Gentile world, particularly in this Roman church who he's never met. He had these great longings for them that they would come to be able to see him face to face. He would be able to teach them what he so much wanted to pass on, which was the deep, deep truths that we're going to study over the years to come. And from there to go to the ends of the earth, to continue to press on into Gaul, France, and Spain with the gospel. We talked about that in the second message. And then Ryan in a fantastic and powerful sermon last week, helped us to see gospel power. Gospel power. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. The message is powerful because it contains the message of the powerful God of heaven. So in verse 17... We're told that, the righteous, that, he, that this righteousness is revealed by faith, to faith. It begins with faith. It continues in faith. It will end in faith. It's all of faith. That's how someone comes to the righteousness of God, which will cause them to live. Not by their works, but by the work of Christ. Connected to that work by faith. And faith alone. In Christ alone. Paul's saying that the gospel of Christ secures according to Ryan's sermon last week, the last two points, secures our righteousness and shows the righteousness of God. Showcases God's righteousness. There, these were the last two points of the message last week, and I don't want to re-preach them, but I do want to back up and get a running start at 18. And don't worry, we had planned to go 18 to 32, and I nixed that. We're going to stay in verse 18. That's what we're going to preach this day, is verse 18. 
Because this is foundational to our understanding of the whole book. If we miss Paul's early definitions and early statements about the truth that we're going to reveal over the course of time, if we miss the foundation, then the house won't stand. We've got to build a good foundation. And so we're going to zone in right here to this one thing. In, in, in verse 17, though, in talking about this showcasing and securing righteousness, this is what we need to know. God secures righteousness for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the historical acts of Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection, that the power of the gospel is saving us by, transferring to us his work. That's the whole point. It's not a righteousness that belongs to us. It's an alien righteousness that comes from him. That's what Paul's trying to strain, by faith, to faith. It's not by faith and then you work hard. It's not you work hard and then you get faith. By faith, to faith, the just, the righteous one, by faith shall live. That's, that's the whole point. But God is also showcasing for us his righteousness. Some people want to choose, is this the righteousness God gives to his people? Or is this the righteousness that God inherently possesses? And I just say both. It's his righteousness that is at stake. But he transfers that righteousness through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to his people. But what is God's righteousness becomes the question. I mean, we're talking about it, but what is it? One way to say what the righteousness of God is is to say that it is the perfection of his character. It is the standard, as Ryan showed us with the scales. It is the standard by which all things are judged. It is the totality of his essence. That's what righteousness really is. And the character, that character is perfectly, completely displayed in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the perfect, righteous God-man. That is what Jesus means when he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father who sent me. The holy, righteous nature of God is brought near to us in the God-man. And this should flatten us like it did Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he beheld the glory of the Lord and the righteousness and the holiness of God, Christ seated on his throne. If we saw the unmediated holiness and righteousness of God for a split second, In our sinfulness, it would kill us with a force infinitely greater than any nuclear explosion the earth could ever see. If we just caught a glimpse of who God was in our sin, it would obliterate us. It would kill us dead. And Paul says in 16b that it doesn't explode us but the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is that it is the power of God to salvation. It's not a lightning bolt out of control. It is channeled through the person and the mediator of Jesus Christ. We behold the glory and the righteousness and the holiness of God in the Scriptures as we learn and see with our spirit who Jesus is. And because He mediates it to us, He brings it to us in such a way that we don't get destroyed, but rather saved, rescued. 
It's truly amazing when we think about it. God brings his full character to us, his full Godhead to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. Jesus is the power of God unto salvation. For who? Jews first and then Greeks, which is a Roman way of saying Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles are saved by this power of God. The good news is good because all that God required to meet the standard of His righteousness has been done in Christ alone. He acted according to the eternal decree of the Father, therefore accomplishing the will of God in righteousness. So verse 17 says, Jesus' life is the fullest revelation of God's righteousness and those who believe in Him from faith to faith are being bearing in their selves the mark of Christ's righteousness. We carry it with us. This is a glorious truth that we should never recover from knowing. We should constantly be on our knees thanking God for what He has done for us in Christ. This is the righteousness of God revealed to us in the gospel. That God is righteous and he has shown us his righteousness in Jesus. And that God delivers to us his righteousness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The great mountain of God's righteousness, one side of it as we look at this peak that rises above all else is the gospel. We look and we see the gospel. That's what he was talking about, Paul, in 16 and 17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel. Now Paul moves to verse 18. And he begins to explain why we need the gospel. Today's sermon is gospel need. The good news is only really beautiful. It's only really good once we comprehend how depraved we really are. And how desperately we need to be saved. If you go to someone who's swimming and try to rescue them from their activity of swimming, they're likely to drown you because they think they're okay. Too many gospel messages in our day are so man-centered and so focused on felt needs of the moment that I'm afraid what we've done is coddled people into believing they're okay. And then we say, but I have good news. And they're like, why do I need it? This consumer gospel presentation, I'm afraid, is sending many, many, many millions of people to hell believing they're okay. They're saved. They got a little fix from Jesus. They got a little help from Jesus. They're better dads, moms, sons, daughters, citizens because of Jesus. They've gotten improved. They got their life together. Look, if you want a life improvement course, go read Jordan Peterson's book. If you want to get saved, read the Bible. You can't get saved reading Jordan Peterson. You can't get saved listening to his podcast. I don't care how brilliant he is. You and I need the gospel. We don't need improvement. We need salvation. We need new life in Jesus alone. 
The introduction to this letter completes and Paul moves directly into this weighty, deep end reality. For the wrath of God is revealed. And this seems so strange to us at first glance. Why does Paul go from speaking about the power of the gospel and the revealing of the righteousness of God by faith to faith to speaking about the wrath of God so quickly? In our modern ears, this message rings harsh and unappealing. As a matter of fact, there's a book right now. It's one of the best sellers in Christianity in England where the church is being told in the postmodern church to stop talking about the wrath of God. Stop confessing that God is wrathful, that he's just, that he's righteous. Don't talk about it because modern people will never believe that. It's the, one of the best sellers. We are so accustomed to speaking about the love of God, the goodness of God, the Father who's pursuing us, that we can be in his family but we're woefully quiet, church, about a massive reality in Scripture. You see, we have grown accustomed to seeker-sensitive, human-focused messages, but the Bible is entirely, from beginning to end, God-focused, God-centered. The Bible is not full of seeker-sensitive or felt-need messages when it comes to the good news. No, the Bible's focused on the ultimate need that we have, which is the fountainhead from which all other needs come. The Bible's focused, so Paul is focused. And he jumps right into the deep end right here in verses, verse 18. This is a second thesis sentence. 16 and 17, thesis sentence for the whole letter of Rome. 18, thesis sentence for the next big chapter we're going to study. 118 through 320. This argument, if you get tired of hearing about the wrath of God today, you're in trouble. If you get tired of hearing you're a sinner today, you're in trouble we got three chapters of it. But if you don't listen to the fact that you're a sinner and God's wrathful, you're in deeper trouble. I'm in deeper trouble. The Bible is filled with this message that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness Hold down and suppress the truth. This is why we need the gospel. We are born under the wrath of God. You and I might initially recoil from the thought of God revealing his wrath against sinners because in our mind, God can't be righteous and good if he responds to sin this way because we think about fitful rages of anger when we hear wrath. We think about out-of-control wrath. We think about the fact that wrath means somebody gets some indiscriminate punishment poured out on them. But I hope to show you that's far from what God is or what he does in his wrath. The problem that we have is not with God. The problem we have is with ourselves. We have a great need to understand what it means when we read wrath of God. Once we have a biblical definition of the wrath of God, then we will need to know why God's revealing His wrath and who is He revealing it against. And finally, what is the relief that we can have to escape the wrath of God? Let's define it first. What is wrath? Let me just read some passages. Exodus 32, 9-11, And the Lord said to Moses, I have 
seeing this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? 2 Kings 22, 11, 13 and 17. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asai the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that we have found. For great It's the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the word of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us because they have forsaken, this is what God says in verse 17, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath is kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. Psalm 88, 7, the psalmist says, Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Nahum 1, 2, and verse 6 say this, The Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. I've taken one passage from all the sections of the Old Testament because I can't read them all. 598 passages of scripture speak to us about the wrath of God using 20 different colorful words to define it. The Hebrew scripture is filled. Our scripture is filled with this idea. There is no small, this is not some small sub theme of the Bible. The wrath of God is the problem for man since we sinned in the Garden of Eden all the way to this very day. And it will do us no good at all, church, to ignore the massive weight of his fury. It would be like cooking dinner in your kitchen while your house is burning down and you say, I'm okay because I got the door shut and I can't see it. When the flames get to you, they will burn you the same as if you had seen them all the time. I can hear someone saying right now, of course he talks about the wrath of God, so he goes back to the Old Testament because that God, that God was an angry, vengeful God. But we serve a New Testament God of love and grace. Well, this isn't a new reply. First of all, you're not an originalist. In the 200s AD, Marcion was a heretic just like you are right now. And he believed there was an Old Testament God of wrath and a New Testament God of love. He was wrong. He died and tasted the wrath of God because he was wrong. So don't make his foolish error. The Bible is filled with this concept, both Old and New Testament. 
It is a false dichotomy when you play games with the Old and New Testament. They go together. They are one book revealing one message about a righteous and holy God whose wrath must be satisfied because sinners have offended him. Listen to just a few passages for you Old New Testament people. Matthew 3, 7 through 12 says this, But when he saw, talking about John the Baptist, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. You think I preach hard. Who warned you to flee the wrath of God to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. I, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with the water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to unlatch. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Listen to what he says about Jesus. He identifies him this way. His winnowing fork is in his hand. His pitchfork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Hebrews 3.11, God being quoted from the Old Testament, but by the New Testament author says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Revelation 14 9 through 11 and verse 19. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now we've seen it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but what about in the writings of Paul. I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 2 verse 3, Paul writes, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 5, 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Oh, that the church would hear this today. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon, upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3.6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 2.16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Talking about the Jews. 
the Jews hindered him from being able to preach in Thessalonica. You remember that from Acts. <laughs> and listen to what he says. So as always, to fill up the measure of the, their sin. But wrath has come upon them at last. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. But praise be to God, he has destined us to the salvation of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the way that Paul talked to the church. Again, we could have simply read text for way beyond the time allowed for this sermon if we wanted to try to cover all the occasions that the scripture speaks of God's wrath. But I think this small sample should convince each of us that wrath is a reality revealed to us in the word of God. In Romans, the apostle speaks of God's wrath ten times. So again, I say, if you're tired of hearing about wrath, it goes through verse 13, I mean, chapter 13. Ten times he speaks of wrath. So today we want to talk about it and we want to read and see it so that we're better prepared to study it as we go. I'm straining to lay a foundation. I know I'm being redundant. I know I'm saying it over and over again, but we've got to get it through our thick hearts and skulls. The, the scriptural nature of this topic should never, ever be questioned. We just simply need to read the word and then define it as it defines it. So, let's define it. Wrath is God's settled and holy anger against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Wrath is God's settled anger. Wrath is God's righteousness revealed because it is the response of the holy God to those who bear the mark of unrighteousness. On one side of the mountain of the wrath of, of the righteousness of God we see the gospel, praise God. But on the other side of that same mountain, we see the wrath of God revealed against everyone outside the gospel. It's the same mountain. It's the righteousness of God. Everyone outside of the gospel bears the mark of unrighteousness and is under the wrath of God. Wrath is the action of a righteous God against the ungodly. It is, un, it is righteousness revealed in a sinful world against sinful, godless, unrighteous humanity. Another way to describe wrath, Richard Longenecker says it this way. God's wrath speaks of God's horror, which exceeds all human understanding with respect to the idolatries and immoralities of humanity and to God's rightful judgment, which goes beyond human comprehension on all such rebellious thoughts and actions. Like the love of God, the phrase the wrath of God enunciates in stammering human language God's horror with respect to humanity's rebellion, self-centeredness, and lawlessness, all which result in God's self uh, people's self-imposed separation from God and their inhumane injustice toward one another. Leon Morris defines it this way. It is a term that expresses the settled and active opposition of God's holy nature against everything that is evil. And D.A.A. Carson defines it this way. It is the determined, willed, chosen, visceral reaction of a holy God against all that dishonors him 
rebels against him, calls him into question. It includes will and choice, but also emotion. Its result is judgment and condemnation. And finally, death. Wrath is a secondary attribute of God, which flows from his righteousness. Now let me pause there, because in the perfections of God, we understand that if God had remained alone in his holiness, we would have never seen the wrath of God. And if that troubles you, let me just say this. You would have never seen the grace of God. It would have never been displayed. The love of God outside of the Trinity would have never been displayed. So when we start to talk about the intrinsic nature of God, we can at least have two categories within it. Not 1A and 1B, but 1 and 1. The foundational things, the omnipresence, all-powerful God of holiness and righteousness... And then how that God responds and reacts in a world that is fallen. And the responses are grace and mercy and justice and wrath. And so, it shouldn't trouble us to say that it is the secondary attribute. It is the right response of a holy God to ungodly and unrighteous men. The wrath of God is the most dreadful thing. Because as long as you are under it, then your life literally hangs over the pit of hell by the sheer patience and mercy of God. If you're here and you hear my voice or you're listening on live stream, I want to say to you, if you are not in Christ, you stand at the threshold of hell. You live there. You have encamped there. You have joined the army of Satan. And if you die this moment, you will go to hell. Hell forever. And you will drink the wrath of God forever. For the wrath of God is revealed. We now can hear the word wrath with its full weight. It's a terrible thing. Wrath originates from the character of God because he is holy. If he didn't take his wrath out on sin and evil, then he would not be God. He would not be holy. But let's further grasp this awesomeness of his fury. Wrath is moral. It's not immoral. Wrath is not capricious. It's not whimsical. It's not arbitrary. Wrath is coming forth because of the godlessness and the unrighteousness of men. It is a moral wrath. It is right. It is the only right response God can have to you as a sinner, to me as a sinner, in ourself and in our sin. Wrath is not only moral, but it's personal. Wrath is personal because it's not just a cause and effect woven into the fabric of the world so that if you do bad, then bad things happen to you. And if you do good, then good things happen to you. That is Eastern mystic worthlessness so that I don't fall under the wrath of God for saying something I shouldn't. But I hear Christians talk this way all the time. We think this way all the time. As if there's some cause and effect. Now, there are causes and effects. But when we talk about the wrath of God, we're not talking about that primarily. We're talking about a personal, holy God who personally does not approve of you. Further, he hates you because you hate him and you are his enemy. He hates you. He doesn't just hate your sin. He hates you personally. 
he not only hates you because of your sin, but he will pour out the full measure of his wrath against you. He personally carries out his wrath against persons who are his enemies and live in godlessness and unrighteousness. That's what Paul's saying. It's a moral wrath. It's a personal wrath. It's a judicial wrath. It's a judicial wrath. It's a wrath that comes from the judge who has found us guilty and wanting. According to Romans 3, 5, which I will not preach today. I did preach it a little bit to Josh the other day on the phone. Poor guy's trying to eat lunch. I'm preaching this sermon to him. In Romans 3, 5, he gets specific about this. Well, we won't get too far in this, but we need to know that the wrath of God is not like our fits of anger. His wrath is moral, personal, judicial. It is constrained by the fact that he is holy and will not do that which is not holy. He will never pour out his wrath on one who doesn't deserve it. He will never give a wrong sentence. He will always be righteous in what he does in giving his wrath. Legan Duncan spoke on this point, and he said it like this. I think it's one of the most quotable things I've ever read or heard. There is no one, there is no one in hell who does not deserve to be in hell. For all of eternity. There will only be one person in heaven who deserves to be there. So if you must complain about the fairness and justice of God, then complain about heaven, not hell. His wrath is moral, personal, and judicial. But finally, and most powerful, it is Christological. It is Christ-centered. By that, I mean this. Jesus spoke more about wrath and judgment than anything else he spoke about. This was a major theme in his ministry. He is also the only one among the redeemed who have suffered the full weight of the wrath of God. The wrath of God fell on him that he might save us. All of eternity we will look into the face of the one who drank the punishment due for our sin. You want to know the beauty of Jesus? It's not in some sappy emotional Hallmark card. It's in looking at the nail-scarred hands and the sword-pierced side and the crown that caused the blood to drench from his brow and seeing him smile at you. And offer eternal forgiveness to you. And eternal welcome to you. And it's Christological because at the cross, the wrath of God strikes out at the only man who did not deserve it. There was no intrinsic ground for Christ to receive the wrath of God. And this makes the cross seem unjust at first glance. Many theologians and preachers and Christians in our day say, oh, it's unjust. The cross is unjust. This is what the Muslims charge us with. You guys don't believe in justice. Yet the central point of Paul's theology and ours by the grace of God is the cross, which displays the justice and righteousness of God and the grace of God all at the same time. How? How? Because even though there was no intrinsic ground in Christ for the judgment he received, yet there was extrinsic grounds 
that he would receive judgment. Why? Because of the union he has with us. He is our good shepherd, and he lays down his life for us, his sheep. He became vulnerable and liable to our sin because he is our covenant head. He represents us before God, the Father Almighty. And he soaks up the wrath of God vicariously, atoning for the sacrifice necessary to deliver us from all unrighteousness and ungodliness and save us and redeem us and adopt us into the glorious family of God. Amen? It's Christological. The punishment for our sin under the wrath of God was atoned for. So the cross is freed from the charge of injustice and is now the instrument of unrighteousness Righteousness of God and the grace of God. The righteousness of God is the ground from which the grace of God springs forth, according to Romans 1, 16b. And we love to read that text, but listen to this. It, the righteousness of God is also the ground from which the wrath of God springs forth. And it is the reason we need the gospel. So... On one side of this mountain is God's righteousness revealed in salvation by the power of God unto salvation for all who believe in Jesus. And on the other side is the righteousness of God revealed from the wrath of God poured out on everyone who is not under his son. Who needs it? Our verse says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. Of men. There is no group of people who are not under the wrath of God because of their sinful nature. No men. In verse 16, Paul said, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is a way to simply say, Everybody needs this power of the gospel. In the Jewish mind, like Paul, there was the Jews and there was everyone else. So the gospel is for all. And our verse says in verse 18, that's because the wrath of God is revealed against all men. Christian, don't ever lose sight of the fact. No matter how long you live this life of Christianity, don't ever lose sight of the fact that you too were a child of the wrath of God. But God, being rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, raised us up. And seated us with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. For by grace you have been saved. You don't want to be a prideful Christian, do you? Then just remember how despicable you were in the sight of God until he chose to love you. Not because you chose to love him. We love him because he first loved us. This thesis sentence is going to lead us to cover the specific ways that the wrath of God is revealed against the Gentile and the moral man and the Jew. But in verse 18, it's simply laying down a general case that the wrath of God is revealed against all humanity. Who needs it? We all need the gospel because we all sit under the wrath of God. And the reason for his wrath is justified because we are ungodly and unrighteous. The complete nature of sin is revealed in these two words. The irreligious and the immoral man needs to know that he sits under the wrath of God. We have sinned against God by rebelling in our hearts and having other gods before him. And we have sinned against our fellow man because we have committed many acts of injustice. The truth is that if a person is sinning against the holy God 
being an idolater, he always sins against his fellow man. Any movement in the world that seeks to have justice without the gospel is a false movement. The only people who can have true love for their fellow man are those who have been changed by the love of God. Everybody else works out of their own selfish ambitions. Everybody else wants the participation trophy. Everybody else wants to look good to somebody or to themselves. If you are an idolater, if you are outside, that's to say if you just aren't under the gospel of God today, you are not helping your fellow man. You are heaping unto yourself condemnation for the day of wrath. The ungodliness and the unrighteousness of man. The idolater and the immoral. The one who sins against God also sins against and acts unjustly against mankind. The truth is that if a person is sinning, they are sinning against everybody all the time, themselves, others, and God included. That's what Paul's saying. The wrath of God is revealed, for the wrath of God is revealed against all humanity because they are ungodly and unrighteous. The people in the world from the garden until today are actively suppressing the truth. It's not just that they're passively ungodly and unrighteous. They are suppressing the truth. This isn't the truth of the gospel. This is the general truth available to every human who's ever lived. The truth that there is a God. An atheist is a walking contradiction. In his heart, he knows God exists. But he suppresses that truth with ungodliness and unrighteousness. The people of the world are always finding a way to deny the fact that God is God. And this suppression of the truth includes passively ignoring the truth of God's sovereign existence and actively denying the truth of God's existence. The intelligent and the ignorant are guilty of suppressing the truth. Good people and bad people are guilty. Religious people, non-religious people. There are no exceptions in the natural state of mankind to the rule that the wrath of God is against them because they are godless, unrighteous truth suppressors. This, as we will see even more in detail next week, is the cause of God's great wrath against mankind. And some of you must come to this reality today. That you are sitting under the wrath of God. You are going to taste the eternal anger of a holy and righteous God if you go to hell under his fury. But the good news says you don't have to die under God's wrath. Not because God the Father is simply going to forget about your sin or because he decided, well, the standard was too tall, so we'll make it easier. Oh, no, no cheap grace here. There is no cheap grace here. God the Father decided before time began to extend his grace toward us to those who believe in his son, Jesus. Jesus is able to save sinners that have faith in him because he is God in the flesh. He came as the new representative of all who believe in him. And as our representative, Jesus lived the perfect life that is necessary to satisfy the righteousness of God. Adam didn't obey God in the garden, so he died. How did he die? He was placed outside of the presence of God. And the flaming sword kept him from coming back into the presence of God. One simple way to understand the garden is the garden was the existence of God with his people. All of the great attributes of God were lavished on him. And in that environment, he rebelled against the holy God. And so God 
killed an animal in his place. He should have died that day. But God said, I will let you live at the price of an innocent life, and I will clothe you in his skin, and I will put you out of my presence. And so Adam, for all of the rest of his days, longed to be back in Eden, but he couldn't go. He couldn't go because he failed as the federal head of the people of God. Humanity. But the second Adam, he came into a sinful world filled with sinful and unrighteous and ungodly people and systems. And he came as one born of the Holy Spirit, not inheriting the sin of his forefather. He's not a sinner. He is perfect and complete. And he chose every moment actively to obey his father. From the time he drew his first breath until he drew his last, he did the will of God. Therefore, securing the right that Adam didn't secure, and that is to live forever in the presence of his father. He earned it. Listen to me, Christian. Your God is not a Santa Claus, and he's not a granddaddy who's going to let you get by. He is the brother closer, uh, the friend closer than a brother who walked in your shoes perfectly. And when he should have been blessed, he received your curse so you could live. Jesus lived the perfect life that's necessary to satisfy the righteousness of God. He suffered under the wrath of God on the cross and all humans All humans were in Adam when he sinned because he was the head of the entire human race. So when he sinned, we sinned. But Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit from Mary's womb. This means he, as God's one and only son, did not inherit the sin of Adam. Jesus was born perfect and he lived perfectly according to the righteous requirement of the covenant. His entire life, he truly earned the righteousness that it takes to see God. Having lived the perfect life required to have fellowship with God... Jesus followed the will of his Father by laying down his life for sinners. He took the penalty due our sin. He drank the cup of the wrath of God. He stood in the place of all his people condemned. This is the meaning of his agony in Gethsemane. He wasn't just agonizing over physical separation and pain. He was agonizing under the fact that he would suffer the wrath of God. He knew he was going to be crushed under the terrible wrath of God. And at the cross, the wrath of God was pleased to crush the Son of God. Why? Because of the great love of the Father for his people. The shepherd died for the sheep. Therefore, securing from for them the righteousness of God. That is what it takes to receive pardon from the wrath of God today. The storm of Golgotha was fueled by the fury of God's wrath, but Jesus Christ absorbed the fury of the storm of God's wrath so that all the people would be sheltered from the storm and find peace with God. There was a man traveling across the west of the prairie states years and years ago on the wagon train. And I don't know if this story is true, but it fits what I'm about to make an example of this. He saw a pheasant on the prairie, and he saw a burning fire coming across the fields of the grasslands. 
and he knew he could not save the pheasant. And he was hollering at the pheasant, get away, get away for the flame is coming. You're going to burn. He's screaming at this bird. And the bird wouldn't move. And he took rocks and threw it at the bird. The bird wouldn't move. He took sticks and he poked at the bird. And the bird would not move. And the fire came so close that he had to back away. And he sat with tears streaming as this pheasant burned to death under the fire that whisked across the plain. The man was so angry. Why didn't the bird run? And he walked over. And he kicked that dead charred bird. And chicks ran everywhere. How long, how long shall I hold out my hands for a stiff-necked people? Oh, Jerusalem, that you would come to me, that I might cover you like a hen does her chicks. But you will not. That bird would move because that bird laid down its life for its children. And I'm telling you, that's what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross. He didn't move. He didn't squirm. He didn't plead for mercy. He gave you mercy. He gave you grace. He gave you eternal life because he was consumed by the fire of the wrath of God. He fully understands what it means to fall into the hands of an angry God whose fire consumes him. And he did it so that those who would pull him off that cross would see that his children would run to the ends of the earth. That's what Paul wants you to know. Run to the ends of the earth with this message and tell them all that the righteousness of God is both the salvation of man, but if you don't come, it is the wrath of God to consume you. Corey's going to come and he's going to share with us as we go to the table. Carlton, thank you so much for that, brother. Um, yes, David, that is fire. Um, Carlton mentioned um, 